This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Melita Cherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And I could barely get it together <laughs> to start that sentence. I threw a surprise at you in the agenda right away. <laughs> so you've just been laughing for like five minutes. F- folks, let me, I mean, I'll give you a little, little taste of what it's like to do a podcast with Danielle. <laughs> So, you know, we have an agenda. We, you know, we we plan things. It's You think that we're just, you know, this is all off the dome. No, I mean, we we have an agenda. We have bullet points and things that we want to talk about, even at the beginning, where we're just chit-chatting. And so I open this stupid agenda and, like, <laughs> and, and information just popped out at me. And I was crying, laughing, and I could <laughs> barely start the podcast this week. So... Well, we both we both have things to discuss, and I just I gotta put it out there. And look, a lot of you will discover this during Dirtbag June, when you're just braless more often than you have been possibly in the past. But my fucking nips are lower. <laughs> I took one. <laughs> like they're lower, and here's here's the thing. Like I not only I just took intense intimate care of my grandmother for the past like year or two. Right. So I know where bodies go. Like I'm not afraid of aging and sagging and all that shit. Like she has the kind of boobs where like her nips are pointing straight down now and like resting on her stomach. Like that is coming for all of us. Okay. So yes, I totally get it. But I also grew up with that bitch. So I've been seeing the progression over time. Yeah. Because I did not, she was not modest at all. <laughs> Yeah, when I was growing up. So I just looked in the mirror. I was wearing a t-shirt, no bra, brushing my teeth, looked in the mirror, and I was like, I'm starting to get those grandma nips. They're lower. Like, I looked for them, and they were in a lower spot than they usually were. Yeah, that's real. I mean, that it, like you said, it happens to all of us. The sags. It's coming. The sagging begins. But there's nothing you can do about it. Because, like, what am I going to do? Sleep in a bra? Are you fucking kidding me? Life is way too short. For me to start sleeping in a bra. You know, guys' balls sag, too. Do they talk about that as much as we talk about the saggy boobs? Do they saggy do not. balls, or is that They do not, there? and they should, because have you Agreed. ever seen old balls? No. To be honest, I've never seen old balls. In, like, I've, I've seen, seen them on TV. <laughs> I have seen old balls in real life, and it is bone-chilling. <laughs> old balls are fucking shocking. Because you're like, I didn't think they had that much give. <laughs> I did not think they had that much give. They had, I didn't think they had that much more to go. Like, I thought that where they were was comparable to whatever is inside and going on in your adult life. And then the male body is like, how low can we fucking go? It's like, let's fucking limbo this shit with some balls. 
Yeah, I, I'm all for normalizing the SAGs. Like, I'm just yeah. like, let's do it. Why not? I feel like that gets talked about less than saggy boobs, and yep. it enrages me. And so I just would like, I would just like to know generally if saggy balls are in the conversation, the national conversation, more mm-hmm. than saggy boobs. So Dudes, we could all feel way in. Old. Yeah, weigh in. Are you talking about your saggy balls with your friends? <laughs> well, okay, so now that you have this information, are you going to get like a nipple lift? Or what are, what are, what are, what no. are you doing with the information now that you know it? Right now, I'm just treating my body like a science experiment. Yes. And I'm like, let's just see what happens over the years because I'm not doing <laughs> shit. Yeah. I refuse to even get like an underwire bra with a lift. Like, when I'm wearing a bra, they look fine. They look like what I expect them to look like. Yeah. But now when that bra comes off, I'm like, these are some grandma boobs. Yeah. I mean, I'm look, starting. I, I, I know. And it, 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 there's a lot of things starting for me, too, that I'm, I'm very interested. I'm just in a, in a wait and observe moment <laughs> as well. Because, yeah, there's a lot of, like, I mean, we've, we've talked about the chin hairs and the ear hairs and the all that stuff, the skin stuff. But, yeah, yep. the saggy boobs thing, I'm just like, okay, yep, I see I see what, what's happening here. And, I see you. You know, granted, I've, not to brag, but I've had big boobs pretty much always. <laughs> okay. Um, not to but, brag. Not to brag. But I'm like a total Russ Meyer chick. No, I'm kidding. But you know what I mean. So it's always been an issue for me in terms of like buying bras and things like where I'm like, I just, it's just more, more to consider when gravity takes over, if you know what I'm saying. Exactly. When you got the heavies, those heavies (laughs) just start. They have a mind of their own after all. You can there's nothing you can do. They're just like little alien beings living on your body. There's nothing you can do. You got the heavies. Yes. And they all fall down. And all of them do. Even the small ones. Even small boobs yeah. fall. So, you know. Small boobs uh, fall and they start looking like wet, wet mittens. <laughs> God. Bless. It happens to all of us. But yeah. I just, I feel like they're still pointing out, which is nice. They're not pointing down. When they start pointing down, I'm just going to buy a sarcophagus and be like, <laughs> the time is now. Let's just wrap this shit up. But so they're yeah. still pointing forward, but they are so much lower than I thought they would be. Yeah. When I looked in the mirror, I'm like, where are my, oh, they're down there now. Yeah. Just well, interesting. But you and, got body and, stuff. You got knees and fucking well, shit yeah, going the, on. Yeah, d- truly. Because... Now that I have a lot more free time on my hands, I have decided that I was I'm going to go back and work out as much as possible. <laughs> Cuz why not? Uh and honestly it com- it's not anything more than it stabilizes my mood. You love like, and, and I, you love it. I love it, but I've t- but it really is the only thing like that has made me feel good in my life, like right. from the day to day. Like, and I've never tried medication, so I don't really know what that could be like for me. But for me, exercise just really like puts me in such a better fucking mood. I'm less yeah. stressed out. I'm happier. I feel I feel better. I sleep better. So anyway, I I'm obviously like 
not having a job is very stressful. So I'm like, let me try to regulate yeah. these feelings by exercising. You do not want to get get shingles. You got to keep <laughs> exercising, keep those shingles at bay. I am, trust me, I, I am not trying to get a huge rash on my side that hurts. <laughs> like, I can't. I can't. Stress um, is a cause. Stress is stress is a, an inciting moment for for shingles. So yeah, look stress out more for stress sure. manifests in really really terrible ways for people. So yeah. I, I I'm just trying to keep that shit in check. So you know I've been going back to my dance class like as much as possible, and you know obviously still doing the weightlifting stuff. But you know as a as I've realized over the past like at least the past year or so, you know it's taking me more time to recover. Mm-hmm. Just generally, like you know, I bought myself uh, one of those Theraguns, you know, nice, and was like, okay, here's here's my my now I have to move into this like recovery obsession mode where I have to buy like wraps and guns and heating pads and shit because I'm really trying not to take any kind of painkillers, like right. You know, I, I'd rather just try to figure this out. And if it if it's really bad, then I'll take like maybe like an Advil or something. But I'd rather try to not do that. So, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of it is that you have to like eat protein and drink water and rest and do active recovery, which is like mm-hmm. wa- walking, but not really hitting it hard. You know, that kind of stuff. Just stretching um, those muscles. Stretching, et cetera. And I just think that now it's t- as my I'm getting older, it's just getting harder and harder to not feel like I've come out of a sarcophagus right. after every workout, right? So <laughs> I don't know why, but you know, I was like, what my knees have been kind of bothering me in certain ways. And I think it's really, it's like a um, it has to be like a rotation thing for me because. I noticed that anytime I'm in my dance class and I'm doing like really sharp turns or like, you know, um, moving in like really dramatic ways really quickly, my knees hurt when Oof. I like the next day. And I'm like, I don't know if this is like a meniscus thing. And mm-hmm. listen, I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't really know, but I have been inspired by all of the basketball that I watch, which is that. When I when I watch basketball, sometimes you see players on the sidelines with giant bags of ice on top of each knee, and it's wrapped yes. in like a. <laughs> they use that kinesiology tape to like yes. <laughs> keep it centered. I love seeing that tape. I yes. love kinesiology tape. It's just like you see it on somebody's back, and you're like, "What the fuck's going?" On? Oh, they got like some muscle thing that they're trying to keep in place. And when I yeah. see those bags of ice taped on a knee, I'm like. Mm. Age is coming for us all. I will say this. It works for me, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just like wishful thinking. I also think that there is, because it's not like proven, that it's like one of those like gray area things where it's like, it could work, but it's more like, it could be that the tape is stimulating blood flow because it's lifting mm-hmm. the skin off the muscle or whatever, which is that, apparently whatever that is, is happening and it works right. for me. And plus, it's cool to wear. It just looks cool. It just looks Especially cool. When you have like different colors going, you got like, you know. You could like rainbow bright that shit, put like different oh, yeah. stripes on your calves. Yeah. I do like pink and black and I like come in, I come into my class looking awesome. Like I'm like, yo, look at my KT tape. I'm an athlete. It's like, it's like back in the 90s when you used to see Paula Abdul um, choreography. She always had those big knee pads on. 
yes. her and Janet Jackson. You're like, shit's going to pop off. You see those big knee pads? You're like, fucking shit's coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so that's the thing is, so I, so I now have tried giant bags of ice wrapped up um, on my knees sometimes. And it makes me, it does make me feel like a basketball player. Like I'm like, you know, 22 year old people wear this. I'm 20, I'm an athlete. That's why I'm doing it. I'm young. I don't have problems. Nope. <laughs> this is my version of taking it to the rim. <laughs> yes. But then also, like, I started wearing compression socks while yeah. I exercise, and that shit's amazing too. Hell yeah. Gotta get what? those comrades. I got fucking comrade compression socks. Yes. That's what I have. That's the brand, comrade. If they feel like sponsoring this podcast, by all means. I will be a comrade model in a heartbeat. I got them for planes. Because I'm yes. like, I just got really in my head about DVT. Like, I'm like, I do not need to be throwing clots on any planes. Yes. Deep vein thrombosis. But I like wearing them when I just do any kind of exercise. Yeah. Dude, they're incredible. And like, it's funny because, and this is the good thing about my dance class, which is like a lot of the people in my class are people my age and older. So they right. have been in this game. They've been in the recovery game forever. And they're like, girl, you don't got compression socks? You don't got a knee sleeve? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, we've been doing this forever. And I'm like, oh. Like, I'm getting it. Like, I'm finally reaching the point where I'm like, <laughs> oh, all of the little shits, all of the braces, all of the sleeves, all that stuff, it has to come into play. Absolutely. You, you, don't, you, you don't have a knee sleeve is such a statement. <laughs> it's like such a burn. <laughs> like, such an age-defined burn. But it's true. It's like, you got it. The gear changes as you get older. Yeah. Like, I remember when I went to my first, um, I used to love taking this, like, old lady yoga class when I lived in Seattle. And I got the same kind of burn. Like, my second or third class, I'm like, someone someone saw me kind of struggling down. And the reason I took the class is because I'm like, this is a chill class. It's a lot of laying down. Mm -hmm. Like, laying on bolsters and shit, which I love. And this one lady was like, you don't have that, you don't have the, the strap? I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's, she pulls out, like, this long cloth belt looking yep. thing. And she's like, that's, well, how do you think I'm stretching these legs out? And I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah. Let me get that strap. The fuck, I got straps and blocks and like shit changes as you get older. The gear changes. Oh yeah. So I, I have a bag in my closet right now behind Ellen Delon <laughs> um, that is like for, it's like a setup for a restorative yoga class. It has a strap, a bolster, two blocks, a blanket. Like it's just yep. like my little go bag for any time I'm taking that like Lay down yoga class, which I love. Oh yeah! So much. And listen, at this point, every class is a lay down yoga class for me. Yeah. I will child's pose so fast. Yeah, yeah, and like, and that's the thing is that like I'm just uh, this did not happen like in my 30s at mm-hmm. all. Like I was exercising so vigorously, and then maybe the next day, kind of like feeling sore. But then, not, but it's not this. It wasn't to the point where I was like, oh, I need to like start really thinking about like healing myself after I've done, you right. know, exercises. I need the, the braces and the aids and the Theraguns and the, you know, the stretching. It's just that thing where it just, it just hits you like, oh, you're no longer like a young person that can just move around in the world any kind of way you fucking want to. You have mm-hmm. to like think about it now. So, yeah, the, the pain that you used to feel in your muscles is like a sign of progress is now a sign of, you better watch it and slow your shit down. 
I know. And that's like, trust me, I, I have a lot of jock tendencies. And you know that about me where I'm like, I could, I could bro with him. Like, where I'm like hobbling around being like, yeah, you know, I just like destroyed my muscles. I've got <laughs> doms, baby. You know, like I'm some, some stud. You, you can flex. You can flex in a gym. You're like, let me just deadlift 200 pounds real quick and then go home and ice my knees for three weeks. <laughs> but you yeah. don't have to know that part. All you have to do is see me deadlift this 200 fucking pounds. Yeah. But there, there is this threshold, though, where, for me, and it's happened now, like, the, mm. it is happening right now. The threshold has, occur- has just occurred where I'm like, do people think I'm athletic or do people think I'm old? And broken and diseased. Like that, that's the measure where I'm like, hobbling around as a young person is like in, you know, your yoga pants, you come out to the target and you're like walking around real slow. And people are like, oh man, she's like an athlete. She must like work out so much. She's just so sore all the time. That look now at this age of my life is like, did she break her back? <laughs> you know, like putting up a picture frame and Maybe we should just feel sorry for her and, you know. I'm going to get a t-shirt made for you that says, I'm an athlete and I went too hard on the knees. (laughs) Or maybe like a tote, like a tote you can carry. Yeah. Like, I will deadlift you, but it hurts my knees. Yeah. But what do you think? Who cares what other people think? Where do you think when you're walking around? Do you feel like an athlete? No, I feel old (laughs) as shit. And I hate it. Like, and my friends must be like, I mean, my friends must be like, what is wrong with her? I mean, granted, like doing the weightlifting is very, it it is very intense for the body. And yeah. that's why, again, I'm really, really, really thinking about recovery. But like, I, I when I went to the movies the other night with my friends, we it was stadium seating. <laughs> and of course, they want to go all the way up to the top. And I'm like, fuck y'all. Like, I just came out of my, my one of my classes and I was like, fuck. You got us in like row K. That's all the way at the top. You mean you? I have to climb all these stairs and then come back down again, which is somehow worse. Coming downstairs is now worse than going upstairs for me. Oh yeah, you, I'll give you a tip. This is a little old. This is an, an elderly tip. You got to go down backwards. <laughs> you got to go down backwards. You hold onto the railing. You turn your sh- turn your shit around and just go down backwards, and it's less pressure on your body for some reason. Wow. But how do you see, just like turn your head and just be like, (laughs) just like step that foot back and make sure, have a spotter, have someone that's coming down the steps be like, yo, watch me. How am I doing? Okay. But try it. Go down backwards. I'll try in the dark at the movies. (laughs) Try it when the lights are up, bitch. When the lights are up, you got to stay through the credits. (laughs) And then walk down backwards. Shit, dude. Well, I'll take that tip. I'll take any tips, actually. Yeah, try it at your house. I just know that I've seen this in play. I've had other friends who've had bad knees tell me this. Mm -hmm. It does something. Well, on that note, let's talk about youth, shall we? Oh my gosh. We are speaking of our bodies, we're about to do the polar fucking opposite. So, as you know, it is February. 
And for the past couple of years that we've done this podcast, we have done a couple episodes uh, for Black History Month. And so for this year, we are going to do two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this one and the one and one at, towards the end of the month. And um, I think that now it's kind of a tradition for us. And um, yeah. I think we get a lot of great feedback about them. And um, I've enjoyed doing them in the past. I don't know if you have, but I have a lot. It's been very revelatory and just really fun and interesting. And I find different things to talk about. And, you know, yeah. this this year we kind of have um, some planned time off in February. So that's why we're not doing the full month, but it's still going to be tight. I still think I love the themes that we pick for, the, for this month. Yeah. So for this um, episode, we are going to do an Aaliyah double feature. Oh, yeah. And do you want to tell the folks why we decided to do an Aaliyah double feature? <laughs> well, sure. Um, I personally was a big fan of Aaliyah when she was making music. And, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, like, I was DJing. And, I mean, I must have played Are You That Somebody, like, every week. Every week. Because people love that baby noise. Exactly. People, people love dancing to a baby noise, apparently. Um, and so, and just generally, you know, she, it's funny because I, when I was looking her up, um, we're the same age or we were the same age. Um, yeah. So she felt kind of like a contemporary for me. Like I was like, oh, when mm-hmm. her albums came out, I was, you know, out in the clubs and I was DJing and I was going out dancing a lot. So I just yeah. really enjoyed her music. And, um, the thing about it was, I think for me, when we were coming up with ideas for this month, I was really interested in this idea of, like, legacy. Of people, famous people who die young, right? Yes. Because, as you know, Aaliyah passed away in 2001. She was in a um, an airplane accident. And she, I mean, she was incredibly young. Like, 22, I believe. Yeah. I mean... It's kind of hard to think about at this point that somebody could die at 22 because it's just so young. Um, But it happens a lot. And, you know, tragically, senselessly sometimes. But, like, I think for her, like, I was just really interested in seeing, like, her films because at some point right before she died, she was basically on the way to becoming a movie star. Or at yes. least that's kind of like what she would she wanted at that time was to kind of transition exactly. to film. So and that that's the hard part about you know when famous people die young, it's it's hard always because it's just such a weird it's just out of sync with the way the world works. But I think with Aaliyah in particular, what always struck me about her dying so young is I really felt like even though she'd already had so much success, she was really on the cusp of like changing her life personally and professionally. Right. And it would have been so cool to see where she would have gone. Like she definitely, in my movie, you can kind of see that like her acting is a little bit not great, but it's it's there. And in your movie, she's already a ton, ton, like 10 times better with the acting. And I don't know if it's just because of the roles or the directors or what, but like she... 
I I really think she could have been someone who eventually like took Janelle Monet's role in Moonlight or something like that. Like she was yeah. just moving into a more thoughtful um, and interesting place. And I think it would have been cool. Like we were really cheated out of being able to see what she could have been. Yes. And, and you know, I, I recently watched the Whitney Houston, Casey mm. Lemons movie that came out recently. And there was a part of the movie where they talked about Whitney Houston moving from music to film, right? right? And about how she wanted to make a movie. And, you know, of course, The Bodyguard came along. And she was in other movies after The Bodyguard, too. And and so, in a weird way, I was kind of, like, thinking about that when I was thinking about the Aaliyah movies, because I was like, it's so weird that she was only in two and then was, and then passed. You know what I mean? So, it's right. that thing where it's like, you don't, who could she have been in her 30s and her 40s, like now would, you know, and especially yes. when you think about what's happening now with TV and streaming and like series. I mean, she could have been so many things now, Completely. you know, and, and just knowing that she's kind of encased in these two films, you know? Right. Yeah. And just even thinking about like her, she had a very deep friendship with Missy Elliott, who, you know, every year on the anniversary of her death, like, always posts these really heartfelt posts. Like, she really misses her friend. Yeah. Um, and I think about, like, how creative Missy Elliott is and how she's changed her career so many times and done so many different types of things. And, you know, to have, uh, like, Aaliyah would have benefited from that as well. Like, I think she would have had someone in her corner really pushing her to do something different and to be a little bit more more wild. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a really big loss for the music community. It's a big loss for for film. And it's just a big loss in general. Like, she just seemed like a really, again, like a thoughtful and and very together and, and cool kind of person. Like, I just would have loved to have seen what she could have done. Yeah. And when you consider, like, she had essentially been performing you know, at such a young age, I mean, I think that she was 10 when she mm-hmm. she was on Star Search. That's kind of how she got her big break. And then, of course, you know, she was affiliated with R. Kelly for her early career. Like, she met him essentially when she was making her first album. And I know that there is a lot to say about that era mm-hmm. of her life. And from what I've read, you know, basically they were married for a year, the marriage was annulled. She was technically 14, even though she admitted to lying about her age when she had when they had gotten married. And after that, after the annulment, she basically separated from him. And then that was it. Like she she didn't even want to talk about it in the press. Like she avoided questions about him. And mm-hmm. so because of that, I feel like Danielle and I have decided to kind of not go there. Yeah. Right. I'll, Out of I'll respect, respect for that. kind of what she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's fine to respect that because there's a ton of information about him out there if you are interested or if you don't know about him. Like he he is, you know, he has been convicted of many crimes. And so I don't think we need to get to drag her into um that side of the story because she can't tell her own story. And she also didn't want to. Yes, exactly. So but you know, I think that she's a great person to focus on for this episode. I will say this. This might be a first time for me, at least, on this podcast, but I had never seen either of these films. What? Yeah. Did you and watch t- them as a true double feature? Yes, I did. <gasps> and I, um, 
I have to say, you know, the, they both are so about this time period for me. Like, uh, especially my film, man. I mean, we're going to get into it, but I'm like, both of these movies came around, came out around the same time, two, early 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, right before she passed away. And they are the most early 2000s movies I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, yeah. These movies... Are I, I read an article on Vulture that was released in 2021 about the it's it's called the imperfect the title is the imperfect legacy of Romeo Must Die by Beatrice Loyaza, mm-hmm. um, and she talks about this film as being a movie that was kind of made for the MTV TRL generation, and both of these movies feel like that to me, like they were oh. of a time for sure. <laughs> A hundred percent, especially my movie, which oh yeah, I have to take great care around. Let's just say that. So why? <laughs> because I look. This is something that I have thought about a lot while doing this podcast, which is that you know, in this era of music, especially. I was a full-ass adult of drinking age. So mm-hmm. I processed this scene so much differently than somebody who was, like, 11 years old, right? right? Yeah. And that's the thing is that, like, I'm, I have to be conscious to not completely trash an entire generation because I'm like, it's not my stuff, right? Because then I'm the boomer. I'm the dumb boomer that's like, oh, my God, this whole thing was trash. I mean— to me, it was trash, not gonna lie. But like, I mean, I've gone on record saying that it's like the early 2000s are so dark, it's like unspeakable culturally. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Somebody probably watched my movie and thought they were activated. The, <laughs> the new metal goth scene or whatever that's going on in this movie is probably like their, their eagles, their beetles. I don't know. <laughs> Look, they saw that Jonathan from Corn cameo and were like, this is the life for me. <laughs> this is it. Well, I think it's I think it's fair to make any statement we want about the music in this film without trashing an entire generation because this is some of the worst music I've heard in the history of music in this film. <laughs> me too. And I'm not afraid to say it. I don't care if you were activated, if you fucking rocked this soundtrack and loved it. This is some of the worst movie, worst songs I've ever heard in the history yes. of, of music. So... I definitely think it's fair to say, yes, it was not music for us, but we can also know, we also have an opinion about music from our own place in life, and it's fine. Exactly. Just a caveat to anybody who's about to come in our mentions and say, like, Drowning Pool is is the what made them a human being or something. I I am processing the, this stuff at a different place in my life. So please don't come at me new metal fans, okay? All I know is whenever I hear that, ooh, ah, 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 that beginning to that song, I feel like someone's about to get beat up. Like, I am not about it. Ooh, ah, ah, ah. It's like, like, oh God, someone's going to get shot or stabbed. What's fucking happening? It's like a, a true doorbell to aggression. Mm. Like, it's just like, it's coming. Absolutely. Um. All right, well, then, without any further ado... Uh, we are going to tackle an Aaliyah double feature this week. And my movie was made in 2002. It was directed by Michael Reimer. The screenplay is by Scott Abbott and Michael Petroni, and it's called Queen of the Damned. Come out, come out, whatever you are. 
I've come to give you the world. <laughs> so, I gotta say, uh, talking about another Anne Rice. You fucking property. love Lestat. You fucking love going back to this bitch. You are like, let me see what Lestat's up to. <laughs> gotta check in with Lestat every once in a while. Lestat. But listen, I learned, I learned a lot since the last time, like from interviewing a bit. <laughs> From Interview with a Vampire, I've learned a lot. Which is to say this. Alongside Eminem, the entire city of Philadelphia, and hackers, I am not saying bad shit about Anne Rice ever. (laughs) You're like, do not come for me with your mail bombs. Yes, please do not. (laughs) The Anne Rice fans are very protective. They're legion. Legion. But I, but I feel like I'm comfortable saying this, okay? So this is, this of course, again, is the second Anne Rice property that we're talking about on the podcast. And this was, Queen of the Damned was the second attempt at Hollywood adapting the Vampire Chronicles, which of course are the books that Anne Rice put out, featuring Lestat. And the Queen of the Damned is technically the third book that came mm. out uh, in 1988. It goes Interview with the Vampire, then The Vampire Lestat, and then Queen of the Damned. Okay? And as we know now, you know, Anne Rice hated Interview, interview with a Vampire when it first came out. I just want to say, because you know they're going to come for us, is, is it Interview with the Vampire? Oh my God. <laughs> I did it again. I keep saying Interview with a Vampire. They're going to come for us. Oh my God. Okay, listen. I mean, interview with the vampire. Why do I say a vampire? Because it makes more grammatical sense. Because <laughs> I do it too. That's well, why it's like, it, it's really just like, are we just interviewing any vampire? Exactly. Or are we going to interview the vampire? <laughs> it's the one that we okay. could find. The one we could find. If, we, if they could find more, if they could have pulled up Maury, it would have been a vampire. God damn it. I knew I was going to do that. So anyway, what... So basically, this was the third book out of the Vampire Chronicles. And like, as we know, Anne Rice came around on Interview with the Vampire, right? Mm -hmm. Because at first she didn't like it. She couldn't understand why Tom Cruise, the most famous dude ever, was going to play Lestat. And then she watched the movie and then issued that apology to Tom Cruise. Be like, you were actually amazing. Sorry. Sorry for trashing you. You were my Um, camp king. (laughs) However... I don't believe that she came around on Queen of the Damned. How could she? How could she? Okay. I read an article um, on the How Stuff Works website talking about how, you know, Anne Rice was kind of dismissive of the film. Mm -hmm. And then I guess on her Facebook page at a certain point, she actually told her fans to forget that the movie ever got made or something. Damn. (laughs) Even though the article had said that, you know, she was in good spirits about it when it first kind of came out, but then after she saw it, she kind of just like, was like, eh, I don't like it, and, and buried it. And then apparently, she was not even really involved in it from a writing perspective, which I think like, was kind of a sore subject for her too. So I just felt like, Queen of the Damned was kind of like not her bag. No. And you take a book written by 
and rice, and you use two men to adapt it, you're going to get a different flavor. Exactly, right? And, you know, the movie didn't do so hot at the box office when it came out. It got really bad reviews, which I think is unfortunate for Aaliyah, right? Yeah. Uh, And we'll get into that. Um, But this movie was, in fact, the last film that she made before she passed away. And she had shot the entire film. Um, But, you know, as you know, in movies, lots of things happen after principal photography. You know, a lot of times actors come in and do audio or reshoots or whatever. And what I think is really interesting is that it's almost kind of like a Paul Walker thing with The Fast and the Furious where Aaliyah's brother actually came in after her death and did some audio work in her absence for the film. Um, Which is very fascinating, obviously. That's cool. Now, I know we're kind of doing it in reverse this week because my film came out after your film. But after Romeo Must Die, which is your film this week, she was like, they were kind of like, okay, cool. Like, she can act. You know, she's obviously a famous musician. So let's try to put her in this you know, big vampire movie, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is is kind of the thing that we talked about in the intro, which just makes her death kind of more sad because it's like she was kind of, you know, in lock with becoming a big movie star. Yeah. Now, again, I have not seen this movie before. However, I remember all of the press for it <laughs> like when it came out. <laughs> and all of the posters, all of the video art, she, it was her it was on her. everything. Don't you remember? Absolutely. It was like that headpiece. And then, of course, I mean, we have to know that Aaliyah has the flattest, thinnest, most perfect torso of any human to have ever lived. Like six packs, every outfit is a crop top. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, remember when we, in that episode, I don't remember what movie we're talking about. We were talking about how the long flat torso was the absolute look of the 90s because it was like, and and the fashion was was basically set up to accentuate that. So he had, like, Mm -hmm. tiny little handkerchief tops with, like, low-rise jeans. Yep. This is, that was Keira Knightley's moment to shine. Yes. (laughs) The long torso queens had it. Yes. Locked in this era. Yes, and and Aaliyah was probably, like, the best representation of that look. She had, you know, and she knew, and she knew it because that's the way she moved. She kind of shook that lower part and it was very, like, slinky and, you know, she knew what she had. Let's get serious. And that's what this movie is in a nutshell, is to Aaliyah's torso. But it's that thing of, like, she was on everything. It was like, she was on the posters, she was on the, the box art. And so, being that I had never seen this movie before, I thought that she was going to be in it the whole time. Yeah. And... As I found out after watching the movie, she kind of doesn't come in until the middle of the film. Exactly. And generally, she is not in it enough, in my opinion. At all. The whole movie should have been Aaliyah. Well, and that is something I want to talk to you about, too, because I got to be honest with you. I'm kind of like, why hire this very famous musician who is beautiful and young? And then she's kind of this, like, secondary character to Lestat, which Mm -hmm. I get it, it's a Lestat film, but like, it almost felt like 
his story was extremely front and center, and then she was just kind of like this weird thing that happened every once in a while. Do you and know her, what I'm saying? Her story, her backstory, especially as Akasha, was more interesting. Like, I wish I would yes. have seen the things that they were talking about instead of them just talking about them. Because Lestat yes. is a real mouthy bitch in this movie. He does not shut up. It's like from the minute the movie starts, he's like talking about how he's going back to the grave and then he's coming back because he hears this music. And But he's just like talking and talking and talking, but there's nothing really happening in his story except that he pissed off all the vampires and they're going to come for him. Like, what else is going on there? Her story was exactly. more interesting. No, no, exactly. And part of me believes, and like I said, I'm trying not to disparage the entire generation of, of the, when this movie came out. But part of me feels like it was because we were in this, like, really weird era of masculinity mm-hmm. and of, like, and it just feels like, well, of course they're going to focus on, you know, Lestat being a rock star and, you know, right. make his whole, like, rock star story front and center versus a woman's story, mm-hmm. right? If this movie came out now, it would be all about Aaliyah. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, how the tide changes. Like, yep. nobody would give a fuck about, you know, Lestat starting a band, basically. Uh, it would be all about her and all about her, you know, her story, her rise, her costumes, everything. Her king, everything. <laughs> yes. Like, show me that king. Don't just tell me about his story. Show me the king in Egypt and the sands of time and, like, show me this shit. Right. I mean, I, I think I've gone on record saying that I felt like the early 2000s was a really low point for feminism, and I feel like maybe yeah. this is, maybe that's why the story is is like that is. But, you know, like that Agree. Is. That's why the story is what it is. However, so, I, I thought about giving a one-sentence synopsis, but it's really kind of just, like, complicated. The story is kind of complicated. It, it's very much about Lestat, the vampire, okay? And the general gist of the film is that he was sleeping and was awoken by a band and then decided, I want to be the lead singer of that band. I can't believe that this is the music. Like, you came back to From the Dead for this. You came back to Earth for this. You skipped yes. the 50s, the 60s. You skipped Led Zeppelin. You skipped all of that shit. You even skipped, like, fucking death metal and fucking Hollywood metal. This is what you came back for? He has always been the tackiest fucking bitch. I, I'm like, you could have joined ABBA. That Thank seems you. way more Lestat than <laughs> being in a new metal band. To you me. couldn't you couldn't play backup guitar for Bowie? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like that was your time to fucking shine. And like we alluded to, this entire movie is fueled by early 2000s new metal, okay? Jonathan from Korn, the band Korn, did all the music for it. He actually is the voice of Lestat when he's singing. Okay, which I I just, I'm going to have to just like opt out of commenting on that. Because I think, so I think Lestat- I don't think the voice is bad. I think the lyrics are fucking god awful. Oh God. And you know, I watch everything with subtitles. So I was like, I want to 
fall onto a hole and die. Um, One of the lyrics, I'm just going to pepper these in throughout your commentary. One of the lyrics is, you think you're smart, you're not. (laughs) Actual, sang it out in a song. You think you're smart, you're not. Like, school ground taunts. It's it's just it like and look granted like I know that Lestat is a very like as a character he's ostentatious and like flashy and he loves drama and that's like great yes king of the goths we know this but I just felt like I don't know him being the lead singer of a new metal band in 2002 was just like really just did not settle well with me and I was like damn Lestat. Now I got to see you in his band, right? And here's the other thing about the about the story. So Lestat is the lead singer of a band and he's out here telling everybody he's a vampire, which is not, not part of the vampire rules. You're not allowed to tell people you're a vampire. You're supposed to just like... Live in darkness. Suck it on rats. <laughs> crack it open rats alone in your, in your house, your old house. Like you're not supposed to be out here in Rolling Stone magazine being like, I'm a vampire, y'all, and I'm in a band. (laughs) And also the lyrics I have are are about all this old wisdom shit that I'm trying to use to lure other vampires to me. So I'm giving away secrets and like left and right. Like I'm talking secrets just by being a personality and I'm singing secrets. Right. So in, in the film, Lestat is out here. He is out here talking all the vampire secrets. All the other vampires in the world are like, oh my God, we got to fucking shut this guy down. He's like telling too many of our secrets, okay? So what ends up happening is that he, there's there's also a side story of this girl named Jessie, okay? And she is played by Marguerite Moreau. And she is a human who is working with the Talamuga, is that what it's called? Um, Talamaskin. What is it called? Talamaskin, I believe. Okay, let me look this up. I gotta get this right. Talamaska. I think it's Talamaska. Oh, yeah. So, Jesse um, is uh, part of this paranormal studies group called the Talamaska, which is part of the Anarice universe, okay? And she's like, I've watched Lestat's band on MTV or whatever, and then goes to her mentor and says, you know, do you know that this is happening? And he's like, well, yeah, we know Lestat's a vampire. He was created by this other vampire named Marius, okay? And Marius is, it's kind of the similar story in Interview with a Vampire where it's like, Here's the vampire and then the vampire that made him. Yeah, so it's you get kind to like, of that like learn his origin story. Yeah, you got kind of like a daddy scenario again. But then essentially, you know, these paranormal researchers figure out that Lestat kept a journal and um Jesse gets it and reads it and learns that basically Lestat through his music. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> has awoken a queen named Akasha, okay? And Akasha is played by Aaliyah, as we know. And essentially, um, now he's summoned her back to Earth. And 
And there's it's this whole, like, like, weird backstory of, like, she was a stone statue that was kept in Marius's house, but then Lestat, like, bit her and, like, fed off of her, so they're connected. It's just, like, that kind of that kind of backstory that's like, all right, this is very convoluted and we don't necessarily need it. Get to Aaliyah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, like, that's why she doesn't pop up until, like, half of the movie. Because you have to establish Lestat's band and Lestat's band being, like, on TRL. Then you have to establish Marius. Mm -hmm. And then by that time, then we get to this Akasha story, which I I agree is very convoluted because, you know, she, there was a king. He doesn't, he's either died or doesn't come back. Only her. But then eventually she and Lestat get together and, and she wants him to be her new king, which is all, there, it's a lot of vampire lore that um, I think would take a million years to get into. But then, so this Jessie woman is also involved. She's a human being. She has an aunt named Maharet. Is that her mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. And she's played by Lena Olin. More on that later. But then, as it turns out, uh, her aunt is somehow part of this, like, you know, old order of vampires who are trying to stop Akasha from coming back. Right. So it's just a lot of story, but it's like this thing where I, I'm a little, you're watching Lestat pull very Lestat moves in the two th- early 2000s, where he is like go, bringing groupies back to his hotel and killing them. He's wearing very low rise pants. So you're Leathers. seeing, I mean, I think you see like shaved pubes at one point on Lestat. Absolutely. Stuart Townsend, who plays Lestat, by the way. He's got the worst taste still. If you <laughs> thought the tacking, the, his tackiness with like his fucking pianos and, and coffins and interview with the vampire were bad, well, now he's upped his game to like, at one point there was like a Han Solo in Carbonite kind of decoration hanging out. He's just got like some little pewter skulls hanging out. I'm like, God, he's so fucking tacky. Why does it bother me so much? Yes, exactly. And, it, you know, it's just that thing of, like, and it's all to the soundtrack of this, like, new metal music. It, frankly, drives me fucking crazy. It's it's kind of, it, like, I I'm, I tried really hard to stay with it. I was like, oh, my God, this music is pretty bad. Um, I also, in, in terms of talking about Jessie, I don't think that her storyline was needed. I didn't really love it. I wasn't tied to it. And yeah. they're kind of trying to do this forced romance between her and Lestat that I just never quite bought into. And there's this yeah. one scene that is so fucking painful where she's like, make me a vampire. And she like cuts her boob because it's always got to be like on the boob. So she like yes. slices into that boob. And then she's like, he's like, okay, um, let me pick you up. And just like, she's like, oh, I know what it's like. And he just like never ending stories her to the fucking Griffith Observatory. And they're just doing a Paula Abdul Rush Rush video. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Yes, it's very like Aladdin, like a whole new world. Yeah. He's like, they're like flying through the air. Like, you know, I can show you the world. Like, look at my vampire shit. Like, it's just that. <laughs> Except instead of like a nice song, it's like, ooh, ah! <laughs> <laughs> It's the fucking oh, corn beatbox. Like, yes. And, yeah. and, and like, and and this is the thing is that like again, 
this is happening when we could be talking about Aaliyah's yeah. character, right? Like, yeah. it's just, like, in lieu of this other more interesting part of the story. Aaliyah so, has already, like, made her fucking presence known by fucking descending upon a coven and then destroying it and walking out of fire. Dude, probably the best part for me was when she torches all those, like, white pasty vampires in that nightclub. Which is like a nightclub where it's it's like a vampire bar where vampires take it's like they take all these like really like pasty boring middle aged white dudes they all look like John Smoltz from the from the Atlanta Braves like they all like John Smoltz looking guys and they're like you know I guess maybe these guys think they're going out with like a real wild goth or something and then you they remember- get fucking eaten. You remember that model? Um- in the 90s Eve. She had like a shaved head with the big tattoo on it. Yes. That's what the vamps looked like. And then the fucking guys they were with were all like fucking Lenny from the mailroom. Yes. And you're like, you really think you're not going to get eaten up? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, they were all just like boring guys. But it's the funniest part is that like Akasha comes into the bar and she's just like, all these vampires obviously are like trying to get her because I guess they don't want her out of her tomb or whatever. And she, at one point, pulls out a vampire's heart and then eats it in front of everybody. It's awesome. I mean, how is that not the whole fucking movie? (laughs) She lights people on fire with her thoughts. How is that not the whole movie? (laughs) Yes, I'm just like, wow, I can't believe it took so long to get to this fucking awesome scene. Right? And... So what ends up happening is that this this entire thing kind of congregates at this epic concert that Lestat is going to play in Death Valley. And I got to say, this shit is straight up Woodstock 99, like with the fires, the open fires, and everything. I'm like, this Lestat concert is Woodstock 99, literally. Oh, my God. <laughs> truly is. And I read somewhere that they found, like, the production, because this was filmed in Australia, apparently, and they ended up finding 3,000 goths from Melbourne, from the Melbourne nightclub scene, to be in this Death Valley Lestat concert scene. Oh, Um, my. I'm I'm surprised they found 3,000 goths. I gotta be honest. Like, 3,000. I've never been to Melbourne, but I I definitely am shocked by that number. I would yes. love to know what was going on in t- early 2000s yes. in Australia. <laughs> like, you guys are riding the heels of fucking Midnight Oil. <laughs> How did it turn so hard from Peter Garrett to 3,000 goths? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, this whole scene is is very triggering for me. But, you know, when it comes down to it, like, Akasha shows up at the concert and fucking causes, causes chaos, which... I loved. I was like, yeah. this, I love anytime she's on screen. The the one thing I will say about Ali in this film is that she has a very distracting accent. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond that, she looks amazing. She does have a sex scene with Lestat in a bathtub, which, if it were any other movie, I would think was really great. But since it was set to the music it was set to, it made it very creepy. For me. Boner killer. <laughs> I mean, even though th- what I do think is pretty interesting is like Aaliyah being 
an R&B star, was in a movie ostensibly about rock and roll music, which I think is kind of cool. And it's kind of cool to see her, knowing who the kind of music that she makes, be in this movie that's like very much not her music genre, right? Exactly. Um, And at a certain point, I do think that her and Stuart Townsend kind of look great together and they're like, you know, young and beautiful and that's really cool. But just like, I don't know, the, the era just really colored it for me. There, I will say that it was unbelievable to see Lena Olin bite into Aaliyah's neck at one point. <laughs> like, when on earth has that ever happened in entertainment history? <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Lena Olin, who is, if you're a crossword player, a consummate crossword, uh, New York Times crossword star. They're like famous Olin this, famous Lena that. Those wow. four letters, the, the having two names that are four letters has set her up for success, per, for perpetual success. That is fucking fascinating. Oh my God. But yeah, and I mean, look, I, like I said, it was kind of rough for me um, just because I know that the the scene of this film is so not my thing. And I really am disappointed by the fact that Aaliyah was not in it as much as I thought she would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but anytime she's on screen, she's great. Even in that kind of shitty accent, not gonna lie, she's awesome. And yeah. like, you know, I I don't know. I It's that kind of thing too where you look at this from today and you were like, oh, that, this would have never, like it would have been a complete opposite story if this film or this, you know, if it was a TV series or whatever, she was a part of an Anne Rice property in the modern era, mm-hmm. would have been totally different. She would have been like the star of it and like, and she would probably had her own trajectory and her own story, her yeah. own, you know, everything. So, yeah, they would have spun it out. It would have been, it just would have been different and interesting. And I think that maybe they were, it, it's, I, I like that you mentioned the marketing materials. I think it's interesting that they used her image to market the movie, but they seem kind of timid about using her acting in the movie. Yeah. And I wish that that was reversed. I wish that they just, yeah. Cause her, her acting in the film, like I said earlier, it's improve. It's an improvement upon what we've seen in Romeo Must Die, and I don't know if that's. Be- it's not because the script is good. I think if it's because it has to be because the direction was better. But she kind of fit this role more organically. Yeah, and I think that it was just really an interesting role for her to take. Like you said, it's about a whole different scene and it's a whole different time. She's like playing this old Egyptian like like queen. Yes. Um, but I, I thought her acting was great. I thought she was yeah. great in this movie, and I, w- I wish it was more about her and less about fucking hip bones McGee. Yeah. Well, and part of me wonders if, you know, if she had been alive, maybe they would have reshot it. Maybe they would have got, you know, it would have gone to some level of notes where they're like, she needs to be in it more or whatever. Right. And she could have done that. But, you know, just the fact that she was only there for principal photography and that's it, you know, I think maybe it could have been different. I mean, it's all a big, like, what if, who knows? But I mean, listen, it, to me, I think that this could have been her black goth princess moment and mm-hmm. she could have done so much out of that. And like, it would have been so awesome to see her like, you know, continue in this mythology or something. But totally, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um, but, you know, honestly, for me, I'm glad I watched the film. It was really a time capsule of this era. Yeah. And it was great to see her alive and, you know, doing her things. I mean, she's incredibly sexy. I mean, just really, 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 like, impressively 
attractive and and sexy and interesting. So, yeah, yeah. I think I, you. Yeah, absolutely. I I really liked her in this movie. I want to talk about your movie, though. My goodness. Oh, let us <laughs> let's get into it. So, my film was released in the year two thousand. Uh, it, the screenplay is by Eric Burnt and John Jarrell. It was directed by Andrzej Bartkowiak. Uh, and my movie is Romeo Must Die. Let me tell you something, okay? Whatever my father and Mac are into has nothing to do with me. It's been a long time. We shouldn't have left you without a dope beat to step to. I mean, clearly we're going to talk about the soundtrack, which is incredible. <laughs> like, talking about like a time capsule. Yes. Incredible soundtrack from Jump, as Billy has demonstrated. <laughs> now, I'm going to try to give a one-sentence synopsis because this movie is all over the fucking place. Mm. It suffers from a little thing I like to call too much movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was very popular in the 80s, and they brought it back for the 2000s. So my one-sentence synopsis is, a son and daughter from rival Oakland gang families team up to figure out why their fathers are trying to get into football, how to windmill someone in the face, and why everyone keeps killing their siblings. <laughs> windmills. <laughs> we love a windmill kick we on this podcast. Kick. I love watching people get kicked in the face. It's just yes. part of my soul. So this movie is set in San Francisco, um, which I have some familiarity with. I used to I, I used to live in in um, North California. I lived about an hour and a half outside of San Francisco. So San Francisco is kind of where I hung out um, a lot. And just having some some strong trauma moments at the beginning of this movie was interesting for me. Driving around cable cars can go to hell. I hated driving in San Francisco. Yeah, because <laughs> you'd be driving and then. Either you have to go around the cable car or, like, you're stuck in those grooves for the cable cars. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you can just go straight to hell. And those hills are nothing to fuck with. I do have a story where uh, I tried to park. I parked on a hill so I can go to a concert uh, in the North Beach area. And um, I parked on the hill, and I was parked, like, facing— like, I drove up the hill and parallel parked. Mm-hmm. And then I could not get out. My little Toyota Tracel was not moving. Because every time I tried to go backwards to turn the wheels, I felt like I was going to crash into the car behind me. Mm. And so I was doing those little <laughs> tiny, like, backward-forwards movements. And then eventually, oh, yeah. someone saw me trying to do this from their apartment and called the cops to help me move my car. Oh, holy shit. It was a dead-end fucking hill. And the cops drove up and they were like, get out of the car. Let us do this because you're, oh, you're going to fucking smash that car behind you. Oh my God, dude. And I was like, embarrassing, but great. Yeah. <laughs> like, terrifying. Driving in San Francisco, if you could drive in San Francisco, you are, as far as I'm concerned, a Formula One, Formula One fucking superstar. Oh, yeah. Oh so my gosh. Yeah. I, I remember one time when I was in San Francisco, like, this was at the height of my workout era where I was like, oh, I'm just going to walk up the hill because I had coworkers at the time that were like taking Ubers just to drive up a hill, like, because they didn't want to walk. And I was like, nah, man, I'm not going to do that. And I regretted it. Like halfway up, I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I should have taken an Uber. Is it too late to call an Uber to go three blocks? Because this shit is rough. You're like, halfway through, you look up and you're like, why am I in that Jamiroquai video where I'm like somehow still on the sidewalk, but I'm parallel to the earth? What is fucking happening right now? Yeah, I could imagine driving there. 
It is, or walking there. So. Yeah, it is wild. Never been in better shape in my entire fucking life. It is wild. Wow. But so this this you know this movie is set in the Bay Area, um, and primarily in Oakland. And we kind of start out again with like these kind of streets of San Francisco kind of vibes. It made me question something immediately, which is like how how difficult is it to load a gun in a car? Because in movies they always make it look like it's no big deal. But when you're driving over these, like, cable car rivets, like, there have to be accidental shootings. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm loading a gun, and then I'm going either straight downhill, straight uphill, or I'm in the rivets of a fucking cable car. So, just a thought. But basically, <laughs> the reason this movie is called Romeo Must Die is it's like a hip-hop kung fu reimagining of the Romeo and Juliet story. So we have yeah. our Capulets and our Montagues, who are in this movie, the O'Day family and the Singh family. And it's black family gangs versus a Chinese family gang. And right off the right off the bat, the first scene in the movie, you're like, they hate each other on site. They have beef on site. So there's a turf war that is so intense that two women are basically having sex on a dance floor. And these two guys come over and they're like, absolutely not, you can't be here. Not because of the two women having sex behind you, but because you're Chinese and you're in a black bar. Yes. And the person in the bar is Po Sing. He's the son of this, again, Chinese gang family. And Kai, who's played by Russell Wong, kind of comes in and he's like his, his watcher. He's like, you know, we got this shit going on with these, this gang and you got to calm your shit down, Po. And he doesn't. And it, kicks off into a fight, one of the first of, the first of many. Um, and it's the kind of fight where if I were to encapsulate it, it's like, let me kick this man through a glass bar right before I then have to turn around and fight Huggy Bear. <laughs> like one of the dudes at this club is just dressed in like, he just had like a big Afro and like 70s gear for no reason. Yeah. And it ends in that super early 2000s choreographed way where it's like 95 guns pointing at people. Oh my gosh. I I was like, this era of the like, sort of Reservoir dogs like everyone's got a gun pointed at somebody and there's like 10 guys and it's like <laughs> a, uh, you know, like a, like if one guy shoots, then the dominoes fall. Like it's... And everyone's holding two guns, like they're pointing in every direction. <laughs> It's parodied beautifully in movies like Hot Fuzz, <laughs> you know, but like that is the vibe. That is the vibe. Plus, then DMX shows up. Rest uh, in peace, King. Like, rest in peace, King. Yeah. DMX shows up to play Peacemaker. He's the owner of the club. And so this is this, this is the the turf war that has been set up. Is these these two gangs hate each other. Um, then we get to a scene where a paperboy is just traumatized real quick because Poe the next morning is found hung from a telephone pole like an old pair of sneakers. Wow. And we don't know why or who did it or what's next. All we know is that the heads of the family who are played by Delroy Lindo, who plays Isaac O'Day, and Henry O, who plays Chu Singh, uh, they got to get together and talk about this because they don't want any beef popping off because they're doing a major deal where I guess each family owns half of the waterfront where they, this company wants to build a new football stadium. Yes. So they're like, we need those deeds to get signed. We need everything to go smoothly so that we can all be rich and like be part of building this new stadium. 
So half the movie, you're watching the henchmen go around and like try to intimidate the business owners of the waterfront to give up their businesses. And then the other half of the movie is we're also going to just fight each other in between. (laughs) (laughs) And there's some great, I mean, some great minor roles in this film. Um, D.B. Woodside plays Colin, who's Isaac O'Day's son. Um, Nerds will know him as one of the principals on Buffy. Uh, (laughs) You will recognize him from that for sure. Uh, You've got Isaiah Washington, rest in peace your career, playing Mac... (laughs) Who's like the second hand? He's like the right hand man for Isaac. Um, And then again, you have Kai, who's the right hand man for Chu. And Anthony Anderson also shows up and is like the comic foil, but he's also supposed to be watching Aaliyah's character. So he is so insane in this movie. Oh my God. Over the top. I mean, he he is hilarious. That scene where he's playing. The is it like John Madden football game, the video game, and he's like screaming, like you know, like how guys play football, uh, video games, and they get really into it, and he's just like trashing everybody. It's really funny. It's so he is so over the top in this fucking movie. And there's a really funny scene where they're playing touch football, which I will get to, um, where the the scar on his lip keeps moving, like the the scab on his lip that from the fight he got into with. Han earlier. It just keeps moving sides. And I'm like, this is some continuity shit that should have been caught. <laughs> I did not notice that. Yeah. But I'm glad that you did. That's <laughs> There's continuity shit like that all over the movie where like Mac, Isaiah Washington's character will be walking with Isaac and in one scene he's like, he's smiling and then when they cut to the next part of the scene he's just dead faced. <laughs> There's no continuity <laughs> being checked on Maybe he's just mercurial, Danielle. Maybe exactly. he's just like, <laughs> He's like, let me let me calm this smile down so he knows I'm serious. <laughs> but it's like this big, huge family drama, Romeo and Juliet style Capulets Montagues, like I said. So it's all being set up. Poe is killed, and that kicks everything off. What is going to happen? Who killed him? Um, Isaac's like, we didn't do it. So now we got to figure out what the fuck happened. But don't worry, because we're going to go to Hong Kong real quick, because we got to get Jet Li riled the fuck up. Now, Jet Li is playing Han Singh, who we later find out is Poe's brother. And he, his backstory is that he used to be a cop and he took the fall for his father and his brother in some crime. So he gets sent to prison and they're like, cool, we're going to America to set up this fucking empire. Have fun in the Hong Kong prison. Peace. So he's in prison and he finds out that his brother has been murdered. And that's all he needs to know to stand up and beat someone's fucking ass with a bowl of fried rice. (laughs) He's like, let me get a guard real quick in the dome with a bowl of fried rice. Jet Li, again, an incredible martial artist. Uh, I read in a couple of interviews that when this film was made, his his English was very limited to the point of almost non-existent. So they're like, we just needed a film where it didn't depend on his dialogue too much. Like, it just depended on action. And boy, did they get it. Because after he yeah. cracks someone in the dome with a, bo- with a bowl of fried rice, he does a one-legged, upside-down ass-kicking in for a room full of guards and yeah. escapes prison. Yeah. It's his Bronson moment, basically. <laughs> he just goes ape shit in the jail. <laughs> it's awesome. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Hanging upside down with one, on, like being hung by one leg upside down and still kicks a room full of ass. Yeah. It's incredible. It is so yeah. fun. So he escapes prison on a bike, a bicycle, not a motorcycle, a bicycle. Mm-hmm. And then we're in Oakland again. And we get to meet Aaliyah. So Aaliyah enters a little bit sooner than she does in Queen of the Damned. Mm-hmm. And what we know about Aaliyah and her character, Trish O'Day, is that Trish is not about that life. She's like, I will use your money to open my clothing store, Serpentine Fire. But I ain't about <laughs> my dad shit at all. Is there anything more early 2000s than a clothing store named Serpentine Fire? I, that also has a DJ. They play DJ. like play like the latest club hits and they sell low-rise baggy pants, I'm sure. I it, there's got to be some clothes with flames still screened on them. <laughs> I fucking love Serpentine Fire. Me too. Taking me back. You got a, a, a low-rise bell bottom going on. <laughs> A long and lean flare. <laughs> oh my God. Nothing will take you back further. But she's, you know, she enters dancing. She does a little chore- choreographed move with some kids uh, who are just, you know, always around. Always around. Why is Aaliyah <laughs> taking care of all these kids? Like, she runs a fucking clothing store, not a daycare. I know. And she's constantly taking care of these kids in this movie. And I'm like, what is happening? Anyway, she enters dancing. And then we are back to Jet Li for a moment. How did he get to Oakland? Doesn't matter. Doesn't need to be part of the narrative. He just got there. (laughs) And he steals a cab right around the time that Aaliyah is trying to shake loose the Anthony Anderson character, Mo, who's been, you know, charged with watching her because her father's like, you know, they think we killed Poe. Shit's going to pop off. So she gives him the slip and hops in the back of this cab that she thinks is just a regular old cab um, and runs away with Jet Li. And then through a series of moves, we figure out, like they kind of come back together and both trying to figure out these mysteries that are affecting both of their families. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jet Li goes to his brother's apartment, tries to figure out the mystery of who killed him, comes back together with, Aaliyah. And Aaliyah is like Mac, like everyone wants to date her in this film. Obviously. And it makes sense. Like she's so cute. Totally makes sense. But Mac is really putting on, that's her her dad's right hand man. He's really putting on the heavy moves and is like such a psychopath. (laughs) Yeah. He's truly psychotic in this film and is like, you should be with me because I'm going to be the shit and you're going to wish there were two of me. And then he like yells at her and it's just like way too much, like way too much. Um, Yeah, he kind of has this like weird, like he kind of looks like Don Cheadle from like Devil in a Blue Dress, like wearing this like weird suits and stuff. Those glasses. Yeah, glasses, major creep. Major creep. And he, he has one, there's one scene. Here's what you need to know about Mac. Mac goes to intimidate one of the business owners on the waterfront. And it's this guy who runs a crab business, crabbing business. And he threatens the dude by grabbing him by the neck, shoving his face into a barrel full of crabs and just scooping the crabs towards his face with his gun. Like you have a gun and you're just scooping these crabs. Like you will get pinched a fucking dead. Like he's insane. <laughs> He's insane. And the guy tries to protest. And he's like, what? And they start scooping some more crabs. 
And the guy's like, all right, all right. You can have my business. Yo, that is... He is the coldest motherfucker <laughs> on the streets. The crab scooper. You hear about this dude? You hear about crab He will man? scoop crabs in your face and then will pinch your ass to death. You hear about crab man? He has trained crabs, had to pluck an eyeball out with one claw. Crab man, don't fuck around. Look, it's the crab guy. <laughs> like Shit. Mac is out of control. And so... As they're go, as Aaliyah and and Han are, are sorry, Trish and Han, Jet Li and Aaliyah are kind of teaming up and falling a little bit in love. There's this touch football game. They're meeting at the park. Of course, she's taking care of 25 kids. She's getting like a million ice cream cones, and Mac con- like kind of talks Han into playing football. He's like, "I've never played before," and they keep kicking his ass. Like they keep, you know, they're using this as a reason to kick his ass because he's already encountered Mo and his gang um, and beat the shit out of them. So. They do these, he takes it for a couple of rounds and then he does, he's like, no, it's cool. I, I got the hang of it. And he does these like in-air spirals like he's a football being launched. <laughs> like this game is so over the top by the time he decides to kick ass using martial arts, it's like a pile of bodies behind him. <laughs> his moves are wild. He's like, um, let me hold on to your neck and swing around you like I'm on a fucking pole. So I can yeah. kick this other dude in the face. Like, it is just... The choreography, again, of these fight scenes is wild. Yes. But you're going to get a fight scene as much as possible. You're also going to get a scene where Trish's brother and girlfriend are simultaneously thrown out of a window mm-hmm. into the water, murdered. We don't know who murdered them. But again, everyone thinks because of this rivalry that it's like the Chinese gang did it. Um, so they're launched out of a window simultaneously with just... Brings up a couple of questions for me. One, could they have survived that? Because they did land in water. I I had a moment where I thought that too. I was like, okay, they seem to have been alive when they smashed through the glass. Yeah. And it looks like it's a port. So it looks like the water is probably pretty deep. Yeah. They could have maybe, provided that nothing happened to them before they crashed through the glass. But it was unclear. It was unclear. Like, when they unzip the body bags after they, you know, go into the water and we find out they're dead, they don't show any, like, stab wounds or gunshot wounds or anything like that. So you assume they went into the water hole. And as they're going down, they're, like, you know, moving their arms and shit. Yeah. So, like, they were alive. I feel like this is a question that should be on par with, did Kate have enough room for Leo on the door at the end of Titanic? (laughs) Could Colin and his girlfriend have survived in Romeo Must Die? Agreed. Because their death sets off so much. So much shit. Everything really pops off at this point. And Trish, Trish and Han are like falling in love at this point. They're starting to fall for each other, but now both of their fucking siblings have been killed. Yeah. And we're assuming the other family did it. All right, question for you right now. I don't know if the, you were going to bring this up. So, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what I had read about the film, like from a review standpoint, was that they that Jet Li and Aaliyah were not a good pair. Yes. Uh, I think I'm probably less... Like, I, I actually think they're not terrible. Now that we know that his English was not great is probably why they probably didn't have a lot more speaking to each other. Right. Um, and, I, and granted, he's, he was like 37 when this movie came out and she was like 20-something, right? 20 yes. 
There are several reasons why I feel like their pairing didn't work and I wasn't really buying the romance. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Particularly because one of the very next scenes, after he finds, after Han finds a cane in his brother brother's car that is literally a cocaine cane, a coke cane, <laughs> and he finds all these addresses and shit. <laughs> <laughs> he finds the cocaine and then they go to the salvage yard. They're like checking these addresses that they find. And Han uses Trish as a fucking human weapon in the most insane fight scene I have seen in a very long time. So good. So I'm like really having a hard time buying the romance part of it because I'm like, it seems like you just want to use her to like windmill some people in the fucking face. <laughs> And you're way more, it's just, it, there's nothing really charming about them together, but they fought well together. Yeah. And they were funny together. I just wasn't buying the romance part of it too much. Sure. Um, but that scene is fucking wild. Like, he's like, I can't hit a woman in the face, so let me use your fist to punch her, and then let me use your actual body to, like, kick her. Yeah. And tech, it's a technicality that I'm getting around, but also yes. still fully engaging in my misogyny by using a woman as a weapon. Sure, sure. No, this is this is the thing that I actually thought was so fun about the movie is the fighting in it. I mean, obviously, now that we have stuff like The Matrix and John Wick and things, like, and even just any action movie that has come out since 2000, right? You'll look at this, this stuff and be like, wow, this is like so dated. But I actually found it really fun. Like I found yeah. the fighting and the kind of like, there were these scenes where like Jet Li would kill somebody and then it would show this like x-ray of like yes. the blow going into the human body and like destroying someone's spine or something like that. Yes. So- like their arm is snapped and you like see the x-ray version of the arm being snapped. Yes, I mean... I'm an exploitation girl at heart. I love the stupid shit. Like, I love Completely. stupid fighting and stupid, like, fight scenes and, like, just really, like, impossible to imagine, like, ways of killing people with, like, martial arts and shit. Like, to, that to me was really fun. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I agree that, like, it is, like, there's that moment where Jet Li is, like, I can't hit a woman or whatever. And so I guess that's kind of, like, why he uses Aaliyah like all she does is like get propped up on his on his side, and then she starts like roundhouse kicking people. I guess, and it's like, okay, how do they like, figure that out? How do they know that? The, how do they have the body chemistry to figure out this scene? Who knows? He's like simultaneously dancing with her, like doing those swing kid moves, but like <laughs> action kicking style. He's like, let's do some swing kids, but also yeah. beat this bitch. Yeah, and you're right about that. There's, like, no chemistry, obviously. I think that it's not as bad as I think people had written about. Right. Like, when I watched it, I was like, oh, they they seem like, as people, they like each other. Like, as exactly. Aaliyah and Jet Li, they're, they're cool to be in a movie together. Um, they don't kiss ever, which I think is very interesting. And maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part, because, I, you know, I love interracial love. So I'm like, I, I'd love to see this Asian guy get together with this black woman. Come on. But, yeah. They're just kind of like... They're like very platonic. Too stiff. Yeah, they're yeah. super platonic. It's very weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that scene is just... Why, I mean, this salvage yard scene, there's also a moment where like these people on motorcycles are basically trying to kill them. And one of the motorcycles does a little jump on this sign that Han has dropped with the car. 
And I swear to God, that motorcycle hangs in the air for like five minutes. He's like shooting <laughs> and hanging in the air for like five minutes. And I'm like, this is this movie defies the laws of physics and sense just to make a good scene. Right. No, a lot of gravity defying situations. Completely. Obviously. Like, yeah. oh, you're just holding the motorcycle between your fucking thighs for five minutes <laughs> while you're shooting at this couple. So yeah, it is wild. The ending of this movie has like three different showdowns. I'm not even going to get into it. But I will say that there is a point where they mention the title of this movie in one of the showdowns. And Uh it sends me over the fucking edge with laughter every time. (laughs) I cannot handle it. But it is, again, like, read that article by Beatrice Loyaza um, on Vulture if you want to get more into the kind of hip-hop kung fu phenomenon that was happening in this film. And I just think it's fun. I think it's a fun movie to put on, hang out, watch on a couch on a Sunday afternoon. And, um, you know, Jet Li's incredible. The fighting's incredible. Aaliyah is so cute and so great. And she's really, like, sassy and funny. Um, Yeah. And again, just, you know, the two movies that she was able to make before her incredibly untimely passing um, each brought something completely different to the table. Yeah. I agree. I mean, she's actually really charming in this movie, which I will say is different than my film. You know, in my film, she's obviously like a mythical creature. But in this film, she kind of shows off, she's got a very natural kind of acting style to her. And like, I, you know, I don't know. I never saw this movie when it came out, despite the fact that I do like Jet Li and I like, you know, martial arts films. Um, Have you seen Cradle to the Grave? Hell yeah, I've seen Cradle to the Grave. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, yo, we gotta like put that on an episode. And and that was the only thing, my only beef with this movie was that DMX wasn't in it enough. I was like, he should be in more scenes. He's only in two scenes, but that does bring up a good point is that DMX went on to make a couple more movies with Andrzej Bartkowiak, who's like an action movie director. Um, yeah. in this vein. So yeah, he he does show up in other films, but he was deeply underutilized in this one. And I think they could have benefited from putting yeah. more DMX in their life. Yeah. I mean, as much as this, like the love story doesn't work, there's obviously continuity problems. And there's just, you know, it, it just seems pr- pretty dated, you know, obviously. I still think it's actually a pretty fun movie. And I agree with you. I think she's really good in it. And I feel I feel like in this movie, <laughs> she really does kind of show her acting ability a lot more than she does in mine. But right. I mean, all this to say that this week is this, you know, we wanted to, you know, bring this uh theme for Black History Month just just to be able to talk about like, you know, in the same way that there are white stars of you know, in classic movie history, like James Dean and people who have been in films that die really young and they have kind of a really small filmography mm. um, because they they just weren't alive enough to make enough movies. That's kind of how, you know, I think we were trying to bring that kind of topic to the episode, right? It's just, yeah. Two, she was in two films and, you know, could have been a lot more, unfortunately not, but... um yeah, I just think it's interesting. And also, a good excuse to watch two Aaliyah movies because I had never done it, so. <laughs> I love it. And it, and this theme was your idea. I can't believe you hadn't watched the film. <laughs> That's because, I, like, listen, I use this podcast as an excuse to watch movies. I think we know that. Like, we all we both do it. We're like... Completely. You know, it's just, this, this podcast is a Trojan horse for our secret wants and desires. Truly. So, you know, 
The themes, That's what we did. The themes are built so we can wedge the movies in, not the other way around. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, listen, if you uh, want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Um, as you know, we've got bonus episodes that are coming in the main feed and we do mailbags. So guess what? Uh, if you write to us and we like your question, you could be featured in a mailbag episode. So that's pretty cool. I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And we also uh, have a P.O. box if you want to find that and send us some stuff. You can look on our link tree on Instagram. Uh, and you can find us on our socials at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We've also got merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find our merch. And don't forget our bonus episodes. We've got new episodes dropping on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. Plus, the old bonus episodes are going to slowly be trickling out into the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. So occasionally there will be a week where you get a new episode on Tuesday, an old bonus on Wednesday, and a new bonus on Thursday. It'll happen every once in a while. It'll line up. That's right. Uh, Well, Danielle, do you want to talk about the movies for the next episode? I do. So next week, your homework is to watch Raising Arizona from 1987 and Possession from 1981. Dude. (laughs) Speaking of wedging a movie into a theme we want to talk about. Yo, this is going to be a mind-melter episode. I'm going to say it right now. (laughs) A barn burner, perhaps? I truly cannot wait. As always, just love doing this podcast with you. Yes, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. And we will see you all next week. Word. Bye. been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.